Hey, Rodney. What's happening? Macadamia nut milk. Okay. Yes. Why? Nut milks have been all the rage. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Nut milk. We like. <laughs> hey. 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 Get your mind out the gutter. Hey. Hey. I didn't. I didn't say it. I was gonna say almond milk. I yeah. That's where I started. I feel like that's the gateway. Mm-hmm. And then oat milk has become really big. It's not a nut, but are you, are you calling little... almond milk a, a gateway milk? Yes. Should we be addressing this in a legal? Uh, fashion for sure. The state for sure. I think federal it gets Senate. people into the it gets people into the cashew milks and it gets yeah. people into the hazelnut milks. Sounds like a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope. Sounds like a problem. Children in America need to just stay on their their bovine milks, <laughs> not, not getting on all these slippery slopes. But the macadamia, I love macadamias. They have a great omega seven profile. Nobody talks about sevens, but the other thing, there's no cholesterol. Uh, there's very little. I mean, there's some fat. Uh, there's very little. Actually, there's no carbs. It just tastes good. It's got a good. It's almost got a vanilla e flavor naturally. Like you don't even have to throw vanilla in it, which I do anyway because I love me some vanilla. So mm. get you uh Costco. At least Costco out here has it now. The uh, macadamia milk. Mm. Big fan. Gateway milk. Welcome to the More in Common podcast. This is a place where we explore the fact that we have more in common than that which divides us by anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. I'm Josen Battle. I'm an avid listener, and I'm very happy to be introducing today's show. On to today's episode, as a part of 2020, A Decade Possible, this is season three. Today, the guys are with Dr. Dina Brown. Now, Dr. Brown has so much knowledge to bring, and we are excited to be bringing this conversation to you today. They talk about a lot of things, from being the mother of a young Black man, to the reputation of millennials, and how she manages a positive attitude to pursue what she wants in life. Now remember, you can find all things more in common, including their episodes, merchandise, blogs, and so much more at moreincommonpod.com. Com. And of course, if you like what you hear, give them a like in your favorite podcast app. Leave a review. It helps promote the show and get more ears on the amazing conversations. And even better, if you leave a review, we will try to read it on a future show. So share, share, and then share it again. Enjoy today's amazing conversation. And ask me how I know, because the me, the soon as I said enough is enough, and I challenged the system, I went from being a golden child and a star employee, a 2020 Blue Ribbon School principal, Commander's Award winner, community activist, and in three months time became a pariah, and now became a detriment to the system, all with very intentional antagonistic actions to me as a leader in a span after 15 years in a span of less than six months because I dared to open my mouth and say nah this is not this is not good welcome back to more in common today we are with unfortunately a repeat guest because I say unfortunately we have recorded this before audio Ended up not working out, but we're super excited to have Dr. Dina Brown back with us. Um, 
For a quick intro, Dr. Brown's superpower helps entrepreneurs and startups, mid-large cap enterprises implement effective strategies that cover business process improvements, strategy and innovation insights, performance solutions for teams, and culture change interventions. Dr. Brown is an intentionally best-selling author and keynote speaker who has been featured on ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox as a highly sought business and leadership growth expert. As an executive director of the John Maxwell team, she is certified to facilitate, speak, train, and coach individuals and groups in the areas of leadership development, professional skills, and personal growth. Her sweet spot happens to be in helping corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners lead with confidence, communicate with influence, connect with authenticity, and collaborate strategically. And her mission is to inspire entrepreneurs, C-level executives, and organizational leaders to seek significant versus simple success. Her passion is to empower leaders to lead with intentionality and integrity. She also founded the leadership leader shift movement, providing a safe space for, for professional women to get clear about their why, confident about their what, and consistent about the how. She is also a great mom to a, a young man, and we are super happy to have you on the show. Thanks for coming back. Dr. Dina. Thank you for having me. But I'm going to do something really quick. I'm going to rescript that part. Yeah. It's not unfortunate. It is very fortunate that I'm coming back because mm. there's a new upgraded level and version. And so what I have to share this time actually augments Smoke. what I had last time because I'm not the same person anymore. I so love that. I'm going to say it's very fortunate yes. that I actually am back here today. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for giving okay. us permission to feel that too because for us in the podcast production, it's a, it's always when, when it's for whatever we, we take full responsibility and then we feel, um, you know, like we've, we've inconvenienced you. And so we, I, I definitely appreciate that, that, that sentiment. So to get started in this conversation, um, I want to ask you a question. So we are two and th almost three weekends away from the first uh, protests um, following George Floyd's murder and um, at the hands of the Minneapolis police. Um, you have a, a teenage son who is a black male in this country. As a mom, um, how are you doing? It depends. C'est depends. It sounds better in French. <laughs> Is that Xavier turned 18 in March. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he's 6'2", almost 6'3", 285 pounds. And he's a defensive um, tackle. He plays football. And he's my baby pumpkin. And he's known as this gentle giant. And he has an international background and upbringing. And he's lived a life of privilege, to be honest with you. However, knowing that when he walks out the door and he's seen on the streets, that people don't understand or know his pedigree, that they're really coming up with a perspective based on what they see and that he's a black male. And right at the beginning, and I've, like I said, it's before the protest started, we had Ahmaud Aubrey, which was just, you know, hit me gut-riching. We had Breonna Taylor. We had, I mean, there's been so many incidents, but George Floyd hit me differently. 
because when I saw him there, it touched a nerve where that could be my child. And my son, again, even though he grew up international, we spent the last four years living in Orange County, California, in Irvine. And there were definitely many instances where I didn't sleep until I knew he was home. But he didn't have the cogniz the, the awareness, the cognizance of what it was, because why he didn't grow up black in America. <laughs> he grew up outside of America with a protective bubble that often the perceived position and power, which I held as a school principal and as a leader in the community, that he had a protectiveness. I could see certain things because usually they kind of came through me and they didn't touch him. So I, I had lots of conversations of, do you know who you are? And in not saying that, that it's, it's less than, but I need you to understand that when you're out, you have to be aware. I had the same conversations with him when you're out. Um, make sure you text me when you arrive, when you on your way home. And I love to share this and it's relevant to the now because I recall the moment of sheer panic and paranoia I had probably maybe back in January or so where he was supposed to be home at nine o'clock from work and he wasn't home and I'm calling him and it's 9.30 and then now it's 10 o'clock and I hear nothing. So I talked myself into sheer terror. He was on the side of the road somewhere, you know, murdered or so, I mean, just everything. And so it's funny, I can laugh now, but I was laughing through my tears and I realized just how far or how far we haven't gone. I ran out in my leopard pajamas, my t-shirt and flip-flops <laughs> and a ponytail. I jumped in my car. I nearly wrecked driving down all these back streets between my house and getting to um, Boomers where he worked. Um, and I'm just looking and if I saw someone pulled over and I had created a sheer, I mean, I, I created so many crazy scenes. And so I finally get there and I'm shaking and I walk through the door and who do I see walking through the back door of the work? It's him. And he's looking at me like, who's this crazy lady? And I'm just crying. And he just kind of hugged me and I'm just like, I was so afraid. And he said, oh, we're not allowed to have our cell phones. They asked me to work late. So he was still at work. But I couldn't process that. And so when I saw George Floyd, the reminder of that moment, of that he's somebody's son, his mother, his daughter, you know, thought he was coming home. And they might have thought because of the situation and the circumstance that everything was all good, but it wasn't. And now what? So it hit differently. And I just kind of, I have, it depends. Some days I'm really good. And other days I'm not, but I lean into that because I am not going to hide the fact that I'm sometimes afraid. I don't let the fear take over my life, but the fear is actually only subsides when I focus on what am I going to do now? And so that's what I've really been about. But what is my role in this dog fight? What am I going to do now? Because I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to choose focus over fear. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So the focus to help get away from fear, I understand that. Do you do you do any work to process any of the fear? As well? Yes. Like I said, I start my day with gratitude. I do meditation and prayer. That's how my morning starts. And I actually speak into my right now. When I say, this is how I will feel. This is how I will think. It's very intentional about doing that. And when I feel the bubbling, I go back and speak to the reality and the right now. 
But I also, to be, to be truthful and honest, I actually have conversations with my son because my son for a while as a, any 17, 18 year old male would think that, okay, it's just my mom, you know, I'm global, my friends, my whatever. And so I started to share with him to give him context for my conversation with him. And I actually cried because he got to work. Um, we had moved out to Long Beach and of course he still works at Irvine inter, um, in the interim. And for the first time, he didn't go, oh, mom, when I said, text me. So he texted me when he got there. He said, mom, I've arrived and I'm okay. And so when he left in the morning, because he worked um, the night shift stocking from 11 to 6. And then when he left, he goes, mom, I'm on my way home. And he did that. I knew that he was honoring the fact that I was having moments. So I found that me having conversations about where I'm at and even giving myself permission to not be okay sometimes and say, okay, you're not okay. And I do a trick and I do this with anything that's unsettling or anytime I need a moment, I actually take my moment, but I time it. So I set time. Okay, you get 10 minutes to be totally unreasonable, irrational, to live into every kind of fear. And so you need, you can spend 10 minutes and I set that time. And then I say, okay, when that time is done and I speak out loud, I say whatever, life's horrible. I go through all of that kind of stuff that's in my head making the unconscious um, conscious, I speak it. Then after that, I have to spend double the time in gratitude and really speaking about the reality. So if I'm speaking about this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and how everything is horrible, then I spend, if I did 10 minutes, and I need 20 minutes about being grateful and strategic. Okay, so if this is, and so then I, I allow myself to honor the moment and the feeling but then I replace it and I rewrite that script because it's really, again, we can believe what we want to believe. It's a choice and it becomes our truth. But I'm very strategic about what my truth really is and that it matches up to reality as much as possible. Yeah, you'd given, you'd, you'd alluded to your morning routine. Right. And I, I, would, I just wanted to ask you to repeat the whole three Ps for everybody ah. here. I think there's something that, at least one thing for everybody to take away, if not the whole process. So. Right. Um, the three, three, I call it the P3 solution. I love threes. <laughs> and the first P is when you wake up with positivity and you start that with praise and you focus on gratitude and, and all that ties into how you set the intention for your day. And that when you wake up, if there's hope in your day, if there's positivity in your day, then again, it sets you on a course to actually seek that. So what we focus on and what we think about is what we actually move towards. So the first thing is positivity but through praise and gratitude and giving thanks for what you are. Even if it's like, I'm so thankful that I opened my eyes. I'm so thankful that I have breath. It doesn't have to be for things. It could be um, about experiences. And then the next thing I talk about is in that day is the pro and prebiotics and what it does for your gut health. And that that's the health and wellness aspect of it and the vagus nerve. And as I learn more about the fact that that, if you think about everything, whether it's inflammation, what's great and what's not so great in our lives, it can it has a track all the way back down to our vagus nerve. And so having a pre or probiotic or both actually um, in your system helps get your gut health. Because, you know, you say, you know, it's a gut reaction. Well, it is. <laughs> so trust your gut, you know, to do that. But you got to take care of it. And then the third P is productivity. It's just to move. Is that we sometimes say, well, I don't know what to do. I'm 
what should I do right now, Dave, if we don't have these massive planners or an assistant prodding us, is to get up to move, actually have action in your day. So even if it's getting up to walk to the back room, even if it's getting up to walk, go get a cup of coffee, even if it's getting up to walk and brush your teeth again, is at that movement. So you start with that praise and that positivity. And then again, you start with those pre and probiotics that really protect your gut. Okay. And then you also have the productivity and that P3 is really going to set you on a course um, to have a great day. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So one of the things I'm, I'm curious to go in a lot of different directions, but there's a question out there that I think a lot of people are asking themselves. I'm continuing to try to find this answer and you outwardly said it watching George Floyd in the video. Something was different versus, you know, even the video of Ahmaud Arbery, which, you know, I, yeah. Um, what was different for you? Like what changed? Because I think we're all trying to find that answer too. for not all of us. There are a lot of people like, why is this different? Why do you think this moment is so different? Why was George Floyd the catalyst to create this sense of clarity about institutionalized racism in America? When you look at the face for me, again, I'm 48 years fabulous. And I've been black for 48 years. <laughs> I'm not new to this. I'm true to this. Okay? And I took a minute before I watched. It wasn't George Floyd that I was looking at so much. It was the officer's face. Hmm. That as people were talking to him and he's being filmed and his hands in his pocket and people standing there. Eight minutes and 46 seconds is a heck of a long time. Try it. Do a squat. Do a plank. Do something for, and see. It's, but the look on his face of that, I got this. You can film me. America can watch. I'm out in the open in the middle of the day. So what? I'm untouchable. Mm. And it was hitting that. You're tired. It's like the straw that breaks coming. I'm tired of the fact that, again, and this is just the one that got filmed. And I asked the question to all of my community, my network, what if there was no camera? Okay. So the fact that I have, you know, mixed emotions with the fact that, oh, it took the camera and a 17-year-old girl, okay, filming this and the trauma she's going to have to experience to have the world get woke about black lives matter and this is not new and so i feel like it was ripe it was just like the right you know the, the right Molotov cocktail and so i don't know what it was for each individual person i just knew what it was like you know enough's enough look at his face because his face said i can do this in 2020 and no one's gonna do a darn thing to me because this is my right and you have none because you are nothing and having an 18 year old son made it different for me because that could be my son lying down there and when they called him a gentle giant my son they nicknamed a gentle giant so it hit differently for me and it was like a sense of hopelessness and i just chose at that moment i don't want to be hopeless anymore 
I cannot be hopeless and say, well, this is just how it's going to be. And I think a lot of people that is spoke on a subconscious level, and I'm going to say this, and some people may disagree and agree, I don't care, is the fact that you knew it was race, there was racism in America. Because we're like, I just didn't know this happening. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay? It's just that now, because of social media, and because now your neighbor is watching, you now have to show up. You have to pretty much, sorry for the term, edit it out. You, need to, you either have to shit or get off the bottom. <laughs> because you've been saying that, and you've been walking around your bubble, and you've been seeing, but it was safer for you not to say anything. Ask me how I know. Okay? Ask how me how know? I know. How do you because know? I know that because it was safer for me not to say anything and buck the system. Mm. And I've launched a social media campaign that's coming up. It's called Ask Me How I Know. Hashtag Ask Me How I Know. Mm. And it's about telling your truth. Okay? Telling your truth, the real truth, the whole truth that's known to you. And it's a hashtag ask me how I know. Because I had to sit in meetings as a school leader and a principal and not say anything. Because as soon as I did say something, as the only black leader, I was the only black female in there, that I knew what was going to happen if I bucked the system. And I was specifically told, not only by the whites in my hierarchical structure, by other black leaders you need to be quiet and as visible as you possibly can so they will leave you alone. That's how you stay in this game. That's how you can continue to amass the success that you've had. And ask me how I know, because the me, the soon as I said enough is enough and I challenged the system, I went from being a golden child and a star employee, a 2020 Blue Ribbon School principal, Commander's Award winner, community activist and in three months time became a pariah and now became a detriment to the system all with very intentional antagonistic actions to me as a leader in a span after 15 years in a span of less than six months because I dared to open my mouth and say nah this is not this is not good so I know what it's like. You have to risk something. And some of us, and if it's that's you, so what? It's you. Own it. You have to risk something to speak out. And maybe you're not in a position to risk because you're thinking, I have a family to feed. I have kids and I just need to. Whatever's your reason, that's on you. I am not judging you. Do you? I only can deal with me. And I think a lot of people at that point said, I got to figure out what this means for me. And it's very ugly. And right now, it's too much for me, so I'm not going to. Because ask yourself, how many classrooms, all of us have been through school at some point. How many classrooms have you been in? And there was a mean girl and a mean boy who was picking at somebody. And you sat there and watched and you said nothing. Why? Because you didn't want them to pick on you. A um, couple. Well, dropping hot fire. Yeah. Okay, I get long. real passionate it's about that. It's, I, no, 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 no. It's, it's good. I um have a couple observations on Floyd. Uh, and like why this moment has become this moment. Uh, one of them is to your comment about the people who knew. You know, I grew up in a in the Christian tradition, and uh, it's interesting. Like a lot of people, 
I've heard a lot of people say, oh, yeah, like, I don't understand why people didn't follow Jesus. Like, he's obviously the Messiah, like, for those that believe now, because they have the benefit of history and they can read a book that says he did all these miracles and whatnot. And they say actually similar things about Martin Luther King. Like, oh, like, everybody loved him. Everybody, he was, no, he was a social pariah. He was a deviant. He was a troublemaker. He Actually, many people in the Bible didn't like Jesus. Um, there were plenty of people that said, oh, well, you're the whatever. Show me. Show me a miracle. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not here to prove this to you. There's, there's, there's a faith thing. So, the, so on, for, for people today, it's like, eh, I've heard that black folks are getting beat up by the cops. Dave Chappelle does a skit on Dave Chappelle did a skit on this 20 years ago. Was it 20? Yeah, 20 years ago in his stand-up, Killing Me Softly. He's like, uh, oh my God, honey, did you see this? Uh, apparently cops are beating up Negroes like hotcakes. It's it's on the cover of the New York Times, so it's true. Like, and that's twenty that's that's the year 2000. That you know, that's 380 years since slavery. Like, it's still not new then. So that that's a component. Then you have if I go back to what three and a half years ago, the election of Donald J. Trump, that woke a lot of people up uh, in a weird way, uh, where it was just like, "Oh, he says all these things. He's so misogynistic and he's so racist and all these." I didn't think that that existed, and people it challenged people's view of reality in this country. And I remember telling my sister specifically, like, "Oh God, this is horrible," and she's like, "No, it's not. This is going to make people see what it is," and. And, and and she's like, people are going to get to see what we see all the time. And then you add COVID-19 and you add we're, well, hopefully on the tail end of COVID-19 if it doesn't spike here. But we're in the, you know, we're months into COVID-19. We have a captive worldwide audience. You know, you look at like, so events like this, civil rights movement, Mandela ending apartheid, and it wasn't just him, but him being able to bring people to the table, it took critical mass. It took enough people with awareness and the entire world is looking at this country right now because they ain't got shit else to do. <laughs> so they had to see that dude's knee on this man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. They had to see it and they can't stop seeing it. And so now they're now they know that there's no excuse. There's you can't. Oh, I, I was working. I didn't see it. No, no, you saw it. So you <laughs> put up or like you said, put up or shut up. And so I think you 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 add all these factors in and it's like, oh, okay, well, now now some things are starting to move. And now the question comes, and I'm curious to get both your take on it. Um is we're in this moment. By many accounts, it it is equivalent to um 1968 and the civil rights movements of the 60s and just you know everything that happened then there's this equivalency but at the end of the day in 1991 rodney king happened right um in 1995 we passed was it 95 or 96 we passed the three strikes law that indiscriminately has targeted black and brown communities uh, in 2000, what did we pass our first um, stop and frisk rule, right? Which 
affected 90% of all stop and frisks were people of color. Um, and here we are in 2020, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, um, uh, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, uh, Trayvon Martin, like just yeah. keep, keep going down the list. Right. And here we are. And you just, you just said something and I want to map it back to something that we were talking about before is before we started recording, you're in this place now where it's that, that system that says, shut your mouth. Do you take care of yourself and kind of, you know, make, make a life for you while me, I can sit in that boardroom and speak up, say something impact change, maybe go a step further than just where I am right now, because someone's looking at me and going, man, he's a real change agent. He's a real thinker, right? Whereas you, they're like, she really is trying to, to promote this, this, this blackness, right? Like, even if it's not conscious, that is a subconscious thought. So if that's still the system, how do we speak up in a way that bucks it for transformation without creating fatigue so we have another George Floyd in 20 years? Wow, there's um, a couple pieces to that, but I'll speak to first that there's always a harvesting season. And this is the harvesting season. So I say this because the very millennials that people did not, who complained about in their company, they're human rights activists, they care about people, they have, are the very millennials that it was ripe <laughs> for them to lead this revolution. This is a millennial revolution with Generation Z bringing up the rear. Because I said, there's this place for everybody in the marathon. And why wasn't it, you know, in 91 and 92 and Rodney King and, and different things. And there was things that occurred, but really it did not have a lasting impact. It was like a, I call it a placebo, a placeholder. Like, let me, let me give you a little bit. And so that you'll kind of be quiet. But then on the back end of that, let me add another law that's going to kind of negate that. But millennials are different. And so I just actually had this conversation uh, with someone a few days ago. I said, look at what the whether you call it a stereotype or whatever the millennial dna about how they feel about people about people being human about people being connected to people of course they're outraged <laughs> a millennial you know whether this is fact or fiction i know for you who would say yeah you say this if you they work a job and they need to go visit and be with their friend at the hospital and you told them and i don't care how much the job paid that they couldn't be with their friend who's in the hospital they will quit and go live on so right now, this wasn't a, this was a millennial movement. This couldn't have happened until now. Mm. So each time it takes a generation to be the catalyst. And now how generation, the millennials and generation um, next, which is what I call them, generation Z, is that they have a, a tad bit of that uh, millennial spirit as far as human rights and activism, but also they're entrepreneurial. Also, they also stayed with their grandparents. Also, they have a different understanding and awareness. So when we talk about the how we're going to do that is by using the gifts and the strengths of each generation, each individual to lead with their gifts and with their own narrative is that there isn't a one size fits all for everybody. 
And so how do we deal with the system? Each system, each piece has a cog, right? <laughs> and each one has a function in that. It's the very first thing that every single person listening to this has to identify, no matter where you fit on the hierarchical structure, where is your function and how do you use your gifts to effect change and transformation? Not what someone told you you should do, not that you got caught up in the wind and caught up in the sea of it, but you said it and said, I am great at this. And so I'm going to lend myself in this way, in this manner. And if I came to you, I told you, there's always the three C's that I share with you guys, clarity, confidence, and consistency. Clarity is knowing who you are in this dogfight and how you want to serve. Not how Dina wants you to serve, how you want to serve. Once you get clear in that and you've aligned it to your gifts, you can be confident in when you, where you stand. So if someone comes to you and says, you should be doing this. Oh, no, 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 that's okay. Here's what I'm going to do because this works for me. Again. And now guess what? That'll allow you to show up consistently. So you need clarity so that you can have confidence, so you can show up consistently and be in it for the long game. But you have to do it based on what your gifts are. Some people will say, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, we went to the March in Hollywood and one of the largest ones to date down there, 20,000 people. I don't know, I was way in the front, so I didn't know there was 19 plus thousand people behind me. And I took Xavier because I needed him to go and kind of see and feel that this is about you. You might not understand it because it wasn't your, the world you grew up in, but it's still about you. And so we've had conversations. I am not a marcher, protester type of, that, that's not what, that doesn't get me going. And I wasn't going to be guilted into doing that. So I didn't align to that. How do I use my voice? How do I use my platform? How do I use my knowledge? Because I have a different context for understanding. How do I use my gifts? But I felt that day I wanted to go. I want it to go. And so I went and I took him and he felt that and I felt the energy. I felt the love. But even going once, I knew this wasn't going to be my weekend thing. I just knew I wanted to be there for that reason. And so I did. I came back home and I had actually begun to set things to using my gifts. What did I do? The racial literacy for leaders roundtable. I held that. I held the first one. And I said, oh, this feels good. Again, racial literacy because this is a long game. And it's for leaders to have a safe space to talk about their leadership challenges and how to be able to have the conversations they need as a leader. So now I said every Tuesday, I'm not every Tuesday, I'm sorry, the first Tuesday of the month, okay, you can come in and it's free. There's my value at. It's free. Come in for the Racial Literacy Roundtable. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about what you can do. Let me help equip you. In errors, or let me give you a safe space to talk about what you're not, because I know what it's like being a leader and not having anybody to talk to without being, you know, like being punitive. And then what I what I did, I've been guesting in different groups, and I'm now getting ready to launch another series, again, free, because why? This is what gets me going. And it's a three-part series. It is context for conversation, context for clarity, and context for consciousness. Why? I taught American Negro slavery. I taught Jim Crow. I taught Reconstruction. I have a depth of knowledge and understanding about the system itself to provide clarity because people are having conversations without context. You cannot talk about racism without talking about the economics of it. You've got to talk about it together. But people are making it separate. And I say, oh, no, no, mon frere. It's not. It's not black and white. It's green. 
So you've got to do that. But if people don't know and they're caught up in the emotion and it's that mob mentality and that right mentality, like I'm here and next thing you know, we're, it's the mosh pit. Think about a mosh pit. I'm bouncing, I'm dancing, and now I'm in it. And later on, like, where did I get these knots on my head from? I don't even like that music, but you were caught up in the moment. So what I know as a leader, my giftedness is, is bringing people clarity so that they have the confidence to show up consistent as a leader. So find your spot and then work on that and educate yourself, but make sure it's aligned to what your gifts are and what feels good to you. Okay, that's the short answer. No. So I think that that answer should be its own episode. <laughs> just a mini episode. I really want to just get reposted like, right, over and over and over and over and over again. Here's what you do next. Because here's the thing. like Get a mirror there is, and you play the Michael Jackson song. There's listen to Dina at the same time. So a couple of things. Like, so, like the thing, you, all of that was... Yes. And then I was going to go towards. Like, it's weird for me. Like, there are moments when I think about, like, what's next? Like, how do we really make change? Like, I don't think. So for a lot of people, this is new. And, Dina, like, you said it. Like, this isn't not this is there's nothing about this new. And so people are like all gung ho and like, yeah, I'm going to change it right now. And like, yo, chill. It's like, slow down. And the economics, you just brought the economics. Like, I, I don't see, like, I love that there's a, this raise in awareness, it, it is literally the first step. And it, and, and that will, is not enough to prevent another Floyd in 20 years, to answer your question. That is not enough. And it is going to take a, f the changes that we need ginormous and it feels overwhelming when I think about it and trying to answer this question and so the only way that I can keep from climbing into that hole of depression that I love to climb in is what you said like what can I do how can I keep moving uh you know one piece at a time because the financial the 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 this country is I cannot overstate this enough. This country is built on the backs and blood of red and brown people. That's what this country is built on fundamentally. Like it's a fact. And, you and can't not argue. only this country, you look at the UK, you look at the Dutch. If if the world were to pay reparations for slavery, Australia, it would go bankrupt because every institute, there are law firms in the UK that sell that are 400 years old that made money on sending Africans to America that are still in business today. All of their, all of that history, all of that legacy is built on the backs of people stolen from their homes and sent across an ocean to a place they didn't ask to go to work for other people for free. That is our economic system. Sold a dream. And that has not changed. Too. They were sold a dream that this would be positive for them. Part of that and in that sense of awareness too is that why is this so such a thing in the United States? Because people say, well, slavery goes all the way back to the Bible. It's, uh, yes, it is. What you have like to this. what you have to understand is that and why I always say American Negro slavery. Mm -hmm. I say that intentionally because that's chattel slavery. Chattel. That's yeah, different. different 
than slavery because usually spoils of war. Okay. Usually a slave wasn't a slave for life. They weren't a slave because they were black. They were a slave because they were captured. And now you, you know, it was about dominance and anybody could be a slave. American Negro slavery is built on the institution that, again, I, the terrible, look it up, the terrible transformation, what, 1639, 1640. So people are talking about 1863. Let's go back to 1619. The first Africans in America were not slaves, and they were not enslaved. They were not. Explorers were bringing them. Columbus, they were bringing people from Africa as part of the ship. Why? Because they were excellent navigators. They were not enslaved. Do you see that? So people want to start there, and you've got to go back and put context. No. But what began to occur, and I love sharing this little piece and this nugget, and this is a historical document. I wish I could show the people in the podcast, is that 1639, 1640, around that the date kind of when you make that out, is that you had indentured servitude. And here in America, you had three. You had someone from Ireland. You had an Italian. You had a couple people came over as indentured servants. An indentured servant served a certain amount of number of years to pay off their debt, and then they were free to go make a living and become citizens. The terrible transformation in this particular document, it goes through, and I can't think of all of the other guys' names because there's only one that made that just hit home for me. But Billy, he's Irish. You're going to do your three years, and then you're going to be free. Tommy, you're going to be free. However, John Plum, and this is his name, a Negro known as John Plum, will serve the rest of his natural born life. That's institutionalized slavery. The Negro, John Plum, who came over as an indentured servant, it was decreed and declared that he was not going to be free after he served and paid his debt, that because he was a Negro, he will serve the rest of his natural born life. So now you weren't a slave because you were indentured servant or enslaved. I like to use the term enslaved instead of a slave because it's a mindset thing. Is that now if you are black, you are, unless you prove differently. So that's what you have to understand, the context. So that you can enter the conversation properly. So people are running around here, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you even know what you're talking about, crazy? And I'm talking about white, black, Puerto Rican, and Haitians. Everybody is walking around here and they have no context for what they're talking about. And for me, that's what hurts the and keeps the system in place. And that's why change. So you want to talk about change? How about desegregation? That was a change in education. But there wasn't a transformation in the institution of education, which is one of the most powerful institutions. Why? Because with desegregation, 90% of black teachers and educators and administrators lost their jobs. And they were the backbone of the community. That's who people had to look up. And they said, you're going to learn, and we're going to help you learn. Excellent people came out of desegregation. They're good marshals, great leaders. And you put these children in a hostile environment who told them that now you're nothing. You can't even sit in the room with us. You have to learn by sitting at the door. You want a good book to read? Read Warriors Don't Cry, the Melba Batil Bill story. Warriors Don't Cry. And that's part of the integration, okay, of schooling. That Little Rock Nine. It's an amazing story. So now you take these children who were thriving, and I'm not saying that separate or equal was right. What I'm talking about is an institution, okay? 
And you're talking about, let's change. Okay, we did change. We changed it. You want to change. We're going to give you access to our schools. But you didn't transform their mindsets right. and what they thought. Which right. is why I said, I'm not talking change. I'm talking transformation. Yeah. This is, this is why the call that we had just frustrated me so much, Keith. This is why, frankly, all, every white leader that I've talked to that's like, all right, action, action, action. I'm like, what are you acting on? This, so you brought up, Keith, the three strikes law. Everything you just brought up, Dr. Dina, desegregation, it, they, they were, were decisions made with good intentions. And like good intentions pave the road to hell. Like you can have <laughs> the best intentions in the world and be killing your neighbor. And that's what's continuing to happen. Like John Oliver has a beautiful piece and I'll link it and we'll link the uh, terrible transformation document. We'll put that in the show notes. John Oliver has an amazing episode talking about desegregation in New York and how they were as bad, if not worse, than the South. But nobody talks about right. it because it was in the North. It was the North. They weren't, they weren't promoting and slavery, but... The biggest like, race riots. It's like the, it happened in the North. It's like the implementation and the adoption of police coming off of slave, slave patrols. Sure, you know, and you bring that up in that attitude in the North. It didn't change. Sure, they weren't forced to work, but they weren't treated any differently. And, you know, this is um, something that, that I've talked about recently in this new project that, that I'm trying to do is I, there's, there's such an attitude or fear of being racist in, in, in the white community, right? That white fragility to say, ah, oh, I'm not racist. <laughs> and, it's like, okay, cool. You're like, you're not trying to, to subjugate and make, you know, black people oppressed and suppressed, but you have to understand. So I use this example in the video, my town, my town's 95% white. Um, we're a suburb of Cleveland, which is 51% black. And it's a upper middle class town that every single year puts up in the middle of town, uh, a poster that says, support our police. So every year, it's always there, you know, okay. Every year, they also have a, a wealthy white family that um, donates these blue ribbons and probably some money to the police police department to support their police. Okay, that 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 is what it is to us. For me, this moment kind of came together um, on what that actually means to the systemic propagation of this mistreatment of our black citizens is that on the week of the protests that we had, so there was this young young woman in, in town, um, she, young girl, uh, I think she just, she's in college, organized a protest in my town, right? Like three, 400 people showed up. Like 95, 98% white people protesting. Of course, the police department had their riot gear. There were 40 of them. There were spotters on the roof and there were helicopters, right? Just in case things get bad. But of course, they didn't treat it badly because they were all white upper class kids. Um, but that's a, a maybe tan tangent conversation. That week, they put the blue ribbons up again. Like they put the blue ribbons up the week this Which protest is for? being. Ex what's that? Which stand for? Which stands for 
supporting police. The blue ribbon. So no, if are if they blue lives matter ribbon? They I don't they they don't say blue lives matter, but it's a symbol of blue lives matter at the end of the day. But I don't. They do it every year. So nonetheless, the symbol that that expresses to the city that's twenty minutes away, that's majority black. Regard like does what are they going to do if they they want to drive through here? What's what's that attitude? Now, of course, the the white people who do this think, well, we're just supporting our police, but you're not. You you are you are systematically alienating a large portion of our population because they're going to come here and go, shit, what's going to happen if I get pulled over? What's going to happen if I see the wrong dude on the street? I'm not welcome there. And it, and as as patriotic as the blue ribbons may feel to you, you're you need to like this is my this is part my lane. When you talk about your lane, this is part of my lane. Like we need to understand my fellow white people. Like those are the things that create and perpetuate. Cool. If you want to put blue ribbons up, put black ribbons up too. I don't know if that's a symbol, but do it at the same time. Like, hey, like, just say, like, hey, put a fist up in the middle of town. Like, come through here. You're safe. We're good. Like, whatever it is, but you can't just do that over and over again and say, no, I'm not racist. And then get hung up on this word racist and then think I'm not the problem. It's like, but, but, but you are like, you're part of it. And, and it's that little stuff. It's I the mentality. It's the mindset. It's not so much if you're the problem. Just ask yourself, am I part of the solution? Not am I a problem? Yeah. Because again, mm. who wants to just ask myself, am I am I a part of the solution? And do I want to be a part of the solution? And what I see is a lot of knee-jerk reactions, and especially, like you said, maybe the call that you got off of too, is that it's really to assuage their own individual guilt. And so people want to make themselves feel good really quick. And so that's why it's a quick action, quick action, because I need to feel better right now. And, you know, I need to feel better right now. Because yes. sitting in discomfort doesn't feel good to me, which is awesome. a natural, that's a human factor. It's a human totally factor. Yeah. So, but be human for a second <laughs> and feel it <laughs> instead of trying to throw money at it and say, okay, see, that's what I did. So I love what you said is that people are getting caught up on, am I a racist? I don't know. Ask yourself that. I don't know. And, and here's the thing. No one's saying you are. I'm telling right. you, ask yourself your own questions. And yeah. if you're saying that, my mama used to say, a hit dog will holler. So if you're triggered, ask yourself, what's triggering me? What subconsciously do I know in my processing that I'm hiding? Is my amygdala protecting me from? You know, I love neuroscience, everybody. <laughs> so mm, that's me causing too. me to be triggered. So then sit into your triggers. But I've seen this in over and over again of people trying to prove that and they only feel good. And even when you're posting and people get into social media wars, et cetera, and stuff like that, because they need to say and they need proof. And I've told, again, my brother-in-law's wife, I mean, my aunt's wife is what, I mean, like we have all this intermixing in, in our families, et cetera. And so I tell people that, you know, my family is my family, period. And if you're in my inner circle, again, like I said, my son, my, his auntie Laura, she's, you know, six, one Polish descent. 
and he spent summers and time with her and her family in Seattle. You know what I mean? So, but it, what did I ever think that they were racist? No, I would never let my child go there. But are they anti-racist? Probably not. Why? Because that might not necessarily be the frequency that they were on. Why? Because they see things through a different lens. And so people say silence is compliance. Well, I don't even actually agree with that text either. I think that some people don't know where they're at. And so they have to try to figure it out. And what I say is give yourself the gift of time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Give yourself, give yourself. No one has to award it to you. You don't need a permission from your local black spurt to give yourself <laughs> permission. <laughs> Worry about yourself. Give yourself permission. And then lean in when it feels good to you, because you spoke to earlier, how do we make sure that we deal with the institution and the system? And I say one mindset at a time, and it starts with yours. I think I would agree with you that it's not necessarily compliance. I think, however, we are all complicit, Um, maybe not consciously, uh, but we're all complicit. I, I, I was confronted with it earlier this week being that this is June where we're recording and it's Pride Month. Well, it's Pride Month in the States and then it continues for another two months worldwide. And there was a comment on LinkedIn about discussing sexuality at work. And it was it was a derogatory comment towards uh, someone that's homosexual bringing up their sexuality at work. And I was trying to think of a way to respond and then it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh, snap, I'm a straight dude corporate America, I talk, <clears throat> I talk about my sexuality all the time. I bring up my wife. I bring up my children. Um, when I was dating, I brought up I was dating um, all the time. Never a second thought. The only time it's an issue is when it's somebody who does, who's not straight. So like as a black dude who has a ton of problems in this country, I got a ton of privilege in that area. And and in not realizing that I've been complicit in suppressing other people's rights until I just realized that, and I'm thirty. I'm about to be thirty-eight in like a couple of days, and so I think it's it it's that hard look in uh, to you, like you said, am I part of the solution, or if you can stomach it, how am I part of the problem, um, and and listen. It is. It's there. Yeah. Um, so I have to pivot because of time, and I really want to get to this space that you've lived um, and the journey that it took you to get there. Um, you know, you've been very successful, and you've done it in the systematic way as well as your own way. Um, where did that start? Where'd you grow up? I'm Ruby Louise's daughter. I was born actually at USC Medical Center. So I was born in Los Angeles, grew up um, in like North Hollywood in the Valley. And I was actually a product of busing in the 70s. And so when we talk about, you know, the intersectionality of, you know, our lives, but my mom had to talk with us. <laughs> Is that an obstacle is an opportunity for you to be get stronger. So if you look at your obstacles as opportunities to level yourself up, 
then it's the way you frame it. So for me, it's always about the way that I framed it. But I had a mom who said, you might be, you know, a black girl in the 70s with all of these people saying this is against you. But you know what? You need to be twice as good. <laughs> you need to make sure. I've been code switching, I said, since birth. I probably said, you know, my first words in multilingual language before I even became <laughs> a master in that. And so for me... I did run into certain barriers, but it always sat with me that my mom was like, it's not what people call you, it's what you answer to. And no one, no one can define you but you. And so I've always said on that, even at the times when I was in my hole and when I was depressed, and I just, with that echo would ring in, no one defines you, you define you. And my mom used to say to us, I mean, my mom is a really powerful a woman, I call her, she had the Napoleon complex because she's about 4'11", 5 feet tall and, and all of this amount. And yet she just had this, she just felt large and she always, you know, had this largesse about her. But one thing she told me, which is one thing that I stand on and I teach about to this day, she said, the minute you say somebody made me, mm. you have given away your power. She said, when you utter those words, then you deserve every single thing because you gave it away you did they didn't take it you gave it away because you always have a choice you might not like the outcomes but you always have a choice and as i've grown into different positions and opportunities and begin to speak on it and coach and develop other teams with this here's the part that i spoke with leaders about especially with building you know teams is that the same power that at one point in time that you may have given away, you still hold the same truth to take it back because it was always yours. It's always yours. You just got to choose whether you're going to give it away or, you know, to take it. And so I think or even how are you going to um, combine and have a sense of collective empowerment and join forces and say, let's use our collective powers. And so for me, that has been the cornerstone of my belief system. So to me, it's always about mindset mastery. Okay, you can either mind your mind or it'll mind you. And so it's how you think about who you are. Again, the clarity, the confidence, and the consistency. And that has followed me. How, how many times do you think in your life you've given it away? And how do you take it back? Oh, my gosh. Let me think about a gazillion and a fadillion. And <laughs> <laughs> Have you read the more agreement? <laughs> I mean, to be honest with you, there's more than I can count mm -hmm. because it's about consciousness. So I talk about the C3 blueprint all the time, which is what you hear me repeat. But the how that you gain it back is what I call the shift factor. And shift is an acronym. And the S of the shift is self-awareness. So at different points and times of my life, when I had to ask myself the hard questions and the hard question that I ask myself every day and I ask every leader I work with and teams I work with, here's what I say. Where is the lie in your life right now today? And what are you willing to sacrifice to live your truth? And is it ego? Is it money? Is it time? Is it? And so every day, literally, where are the lies? Because some people might have a lot of lies. <laughs> Start with one, make it bite size. Keep it simple, you know? Keep it, and don't when I'm working, yourself. keep it, don't fatigue yeah. yourself, yeah. right? Just take the one. And so in the shift factor, it starts with your self-awareness of who you are today in this moment. 
not five years ago, not 20 years ago. So I've given it away a lot. Mm. Why? Because there were other environmental factors. There was other conscious factors and that I was processing. But how did I come out of the hole is what I'm speaking to. Right. Is that I then resonated that little echo. It's like, okay, let's start asking yourself the questions because it's like muscle memory. And it's mindset. I call it mindset memory. I was able to go, okay, you've been in this little hole. Um, really? And so I never go too far. And like I said, and I, and I attribute that to all the teachings and what's stored in my tape is that I never get too far. Cause when I'm like, wait a minute. And then I have to ask myself, why am I giving this away? Is it out of fear? Am I, if I make, am I making decisions, you know, to do that? And then the H of the shift factor is humility is understanding. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have all the answers and it actually makes me stronger to lean in and say, can you help me? Because this is what I don't know about myself. And this is what, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And here's why I need help from you. And then this is what I need. And I can be stronger by saying, Hey, instead of trying to figure it out and the I is intentionality. I get intentional. So now I'm self-aware. I'm humble enough to know that I don't, I I was never made to do it by myself and me asking for help actually makes me strong and courageous because I'm dealing with my own ego and I'm not getting, letting my ego get in the way of my excellence. And now I can be intentional about my next action. And then the F is really truly about focusing. Now I can focus. I can focus over fear. Why? I'm self-aware. I know who I am today. I'm humble enough to know that I need to call in some support systems where I need them. I'm intentional about what I'm going to do next. The one thing I'm going to do next so I can focus on that one thing. And now that I'm focused, now the T is tenacity. I'm tenacious. And so now I can shift. I can shift. And so I do that all the time, every single day. So I go back and look at a situation that I've actually, you know, been taking some pretty scary leaps lately. And I lean in the direction of my fear unless there's a bear on the other side. And so. And I say that is that if I think of it and it comes to me and how I'm co-creating because I'm a believer and I'm co-creating you know, God and he brings that, he puts that in my spirit and I go, I'm going to do this. And when I hear that tapes, why would you do that? No one's got And I hear that, I'm like, I'm going to do it anyway. I do the one thing. I go back to that P3. Okay. What are the good things? Okay. Let me make sure that, you know, I'm not only positive, but I'm feeding myself things that's going to feed my gut things that's going to help me move. And I'm just going to move. I'm going to take one step. So if the one step was literally sending a text, that's one thing. And so we love micro wins. And if we can just give ourselves a hundred micro wins, okay, <laughs> then that kind of leads to some of the big wins. And so I've just literally begun to do that. And which leads me to what I'm putting on coming up, which is called future cast and future cast is. Wait, the sorry, can, I, can I ask yeah, one question? Real quick? Uh, cause I, I... I what there's something you said in your upbringing. Yes. Uh that I want I would love for you to describe because I think it might be an entry point to understanding privilege for some people mm. who don't have a way to understand it. Um what is code switching? Ah, code switching. Code switching is being able to well um the best way to describe for people who aren't familiar with it is to think about people who are multilingual. And so they speak in their natural language. And yet when they go into another space and they have to go from French to English or Spanish to English, and then they have to change the way that they put their words together to make other people understand them and to receive them. And so for 
many black Americans, especially, like I said, myself, is that there's certain languaging that we understand. <laughs> and, but when we go, for instance, the difference between the best way I could probably give it in relation to myself is that when we're talking and even like when me, Keith and Robert talking, you know, they're getting a lot of Dina, right? If I'm going to go present at the university, they're going to get Dr. Brown. <laughs> Because Dr. Brown has to make sure that the languaging that she uses in that space is, I guess, you know, receptive or her audience is receptive to that. And so while we might joke and I might even use, well, we couldn't use broken English in our home, but so I used to practice outside the house. But, um, but if we wanted to use certain terms and things like that, we would use that. But I would not necessarily use that in my professional capacity because if as a black woman, it was very different for me. Because if I went, then I would become the black woman or the black leader. They wouldn't see me in my professional capacity. And so code switching is something you did. I mean, I was a valley girl. Like, we totally, oh, my God. Like, it was like, gag me with a spoon. Grew up in the valley, you know? And so, again, when I was with that group, I had to have, that was my conversation. When I went home and I was around my black friends, I would literally be burned at the stake if I talk like that. And then when I went to school, you know, and so literally in every single environment is that my languaging changed still the same person, but the way that I had to speak to the group so that they understood and connected with me changed. And that's code switching. And even, I think one other aspect is, uh, comfortable, like make for, for black to white environments, making white people feel comfortable. Like none of my white coworkers, except for Keith, and maybe like uh, like one or two more. I have think even Keith heard is me white like, chocolate. No, <laughs> nah, for real. Like he's he's the white dude with all the black dudes. Uh, but like he doesn't count. That's why yeah. I got it. Yeah, like yeah. none of them have ever heard me walk in and be like, "Yo, what's good?" Like they they, they heard me say that. But what's interesting uh, about that, Campbell? and I think this, I want to, I want to close the loop on why this matters. Like, cause you know, there are going to be people and I think it too. And you know, the first thing it's like, well, if I'm in a professional environment, I talk like this. And if I'm at home, maybe I talk a little more relaxed and, but it's not the same and it's really important. Nope. And I want to land this point um, before we start wrapping up, because um, we, we have a few minutes left is for me where I hang out with um, or have hung out with a lot of black people in my lifetime. And if I take the colloquial, this word gets me every time, colloquialism, colloquialism <laughs> of, of the black community, um, especially my friends, to a white group, no one cares. Like maybe they'll say, what are you trying to be black? It's like, okay, that's cool. Like I'm not worried about it. It's not like, let's, let's, let's have a conversation about what you just said. Cause that, that, that's different. But, um, at the same time, like no one's going to be necessarily judging me on my lingual merits. They'll still judge me on my capabilities, my ability to contribute, deliver, or whatever the case may be versus I just don't like the way she talks. Right. And it's a, it's a, it's a really important, I, I, I personally think it's important to, to land the, the, why that matters, um, from that point of view. It matters. The other too. thought, sorry, real quick, code switch. Like if you didn't know what it was, that's privilege. Mm. Yeah. Cause we've been doing it for forever. But the point of what I get all the time 
and this is so relevant to even address Keith's point, is that when people hear me on the phone or I'm talking and there's no cameras, whatever else, um, they think that they're talking to probably a white Jewish lady, you know, Dr. Brown, there's not that. And so when I show up, it's like, oh, well, who are you? Oh, I'm Dr. Brown. What? And then um, if I am in that space, people always tell me, they've always told me, God, you're so articulate. Mm. What they didn't Earth. say was so more well black. Spoken. Person, yeah. You're so well spoken. Mm. I'm thinking everybody in my house speaks like this. I'm probably like, you know, but All that's, of my people speak like this. Like, what are you talking about? Never say right. that about a white person. Right. And so I get, I get that piece. You know, mm. you're so well spoken. You're so articulate. Oh, you have such a great mastery of the English language. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, what did you expect? Yeah, like I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> can we can we level set there? Does that not qualify me to have an? Well, like I said, sometimes I can throw in the whole, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll go there with them because I'm a linguist. I love language. I love words. I'm a super nerd. I'm super fabulous. But, you know, it was like it was a shock. And so when I entered spaces and when I um, when I first again went into school administration and I had like longer hair and I've always looked a lot younger, you know, been there. And so my ex-husband used to always say, I love when you walk into the room because everybody underestimates you until you open your mouth. Mm -hmm. And so there's a group of people, I'll never forget that. They were talking about me, about this Dr. Brown. And like, really, she's just kind of, you know, like a quote token in a sense. And she's like this black Barbie. And, you know, they're just going on and on because back in, I was always suited, like booted every day type of thing. And so they really didn't give me credit because they thought I was just there because they needed to fill the position. And so when I walked in and again, they announced me, I had been sitting two rows from them. They didn't know it was me. And I went on stage to speak. And as their mouths dropped that, oh, like she knows what she's talking about. Oh, wow. You have a brain. Wow. It was. And I had to live with that. Re over, I had to relive that on my journey. You asked me earlier, Keith, about my journey. I've had to relive that for the majority of my journey. Mm -hmm. I'm an international baccalaureate graduate. Okay, IB diploma. And I had a school counselor tell me that, am I sure that I didn't, college wouldn't be too difficult that I should go to community college? But here's the shocker, spoiler alert. My counselor at the time was black. Hmm. So she bought it. Oh, it worked on system. both sides. Yeah. She my bought it. My parents said system. that to me. <laughs> but that's a you different know? conversation. Yeah. Um, with, with very little time left. And one final question to ask. First, I want to say thank you for rejoining us. And I, I find it fascinating knowing your Enneagram type um, because you you often do Fine. say that. And it, it is often true as a result, um, being a three. But in any case, do you want to close, close the ranks here and, and ask our final question? I do. Yes, I do, Keith. <laughs> <All right. laughs> All right, Dina, thank you. Um, so you've dropped, this feels like, I'm looking at my notes. It feels like we just got like a workshop, yeah. like a Dr. Dina workshop. Like, I, I'm just like, damn, like how much are you charging us for this? Because we got shift, we got P3, we got uh, the three C's, we got like, we got a history lesson. So the question is, what do you leave our, like you've left so many gyms, but what's the one thing you want to leave people with to, to, to ruminate on, if you will? The one thing is, that's before we talked about the whole concept of being a futurist, is that how people dare to dream that this can be a better place 
and that they each have an individual piece of a spoke in the wheel to move this forward so that we can truly live the life that we desire and that we dream. But we have to dream it first. We have to visualize it. And then we have to find how we're going to take action one mindset at a time, one step at a time, one person at a time. And then I believe in the multiplier effect. So it's our own individual working on ourselves and we multiply that and we have an exponential impact. So dare to dream and then take action accordingly.